welcome to the Complete History of Science, Series 3, Episode 4, Islamic Developments in Medicine. The Arabian Peninsula presents one of the most challenging environments for human habitation. Spread over around a million square miles, the interior is primarily desert, where temperatures can soar to around 55 degrees Celsius during the day and plummet during the night. In this region, there are no permanent rivers, and it's not unusual to go for years without rainfall. Even near the coasts, there's no relief, because the humidity is frequently unbearably high. And so, in these conditions, the health of the early Arabic inhabitants must have been extremely poor. In fact, we know that in pre-Islamic times, the peninsula was plagued by a wide range of diseases, including malaria, smallpox, leprosy, and tuberculosis. Their prevalence is reflected in the Arabic language, which has an abundance of words for these diseases. For example, leprosy was known variously as baras, wadha, and jutam. The result was that these diseases, along with a high infant mortality rate, resulted in a very low life expectancy for the population. There were also few effective treatments available. Remedies were drawn from popular folk medicine and lacked any scientific or theoretical basis. Instead, people desperate for cure often resorted to superstitious practices. One poem from this era tells of a man who experienced alternating bouts of hot and cold sweats, likely malaria. Believing that the fever only attacked human beings, the man is said to have stood at the town gates, braying like a donkey, in the hope that he would be spared. This state of affairs, however, would change dramatically as the Arab conquests in Mesopotamia, Persia and North Africa brought them into contact with Hellenistic medicine. Nestorian Christians and Persian doctors practicing the Greek tradition of medicine became common in the greater Islamic empire and marked a huge improvement in the available medical care. In the 8th century, one of these Nestorians, a man known as Ibn Buktishu, became the courtly physician for the Alpicid Caliph al-Mansur, and eventually, eight generations of his family would serve as physicians in the royal palace. The process of Hellenization accelerated in the 9th century, as the translation movement gave the Islamic world wider access to ancient medical theory. As with astronomy, many of these translations originated in the House of Wisdom in Baghdad. But this was only the latest chapter in a long history of translations which had begun with the Nestorians. The most important translator of this era was a man known as Hunayn ibn Ishaq, another Nestorian who became head of the House of Wisdom. A remarkable figure, he personally was responsible for translating over a hundred works in astronomy, philosophy and mathematics. But he is well known as the premier translator of medical texts. Hunayn's work was mainly focused on Galen, who, since his death, had become the dominant figure in Hellenistic medicine. By the end of the 9th century, mainly thanks to Hunayn and his circle of translators, 
some 130 of Galen's works had been translated into Arabic. Hunayn's approach to translation was unique, in that he insisted on preserving the whole meaning of the original text, rather than slavishly translating it word by word, as had often done previously. Hunayn would subtly change texts to make them clearer to his Arabic-speaking audience, while still managing to maintain the sense of the original. In the course of this translation work, he was responsible for developing a vast new Arabic vocabulary which could express the technical and abstract ideas of Galen. However, despite the relative availability of Galen's work, there was still a major issue. There were simply far too many texts and most practicing physicians couldn't possibly be expected to read, let alone own them all. Hunayn was himself a practicing physician and wrote a famous summary of Galen's medicine aimed at other doctors. Compendia of Galen's work were already very common in late antiquity, and those compiled in Alexandria were also translated by Hunayn. These compilations created a new, streamlined version of Galen's ideas, which came to be known as Galenism. Much of this new practice simplified rather than expanded Galen's work. So, while the arrival of this body of knowledge undoubtedly improved many of the health outcomes in the region, there was not a huge advance in medical theory. Arabic physicians can instead be said to have absorbed Galen's work, moulding it into a system which they regarded as comprehensive and flawless. Nevertheless, the Islamic world saw some advances in medical practice, despite the limited progress in medical theory. Abu Bakr al-Razi is widely considered the greatest physician of this era. Born around 864 AD, he became the first director of the Great Hospital in Baghdad. Hospitals, originally a Byzantine invention, became common in Islamic territories during the early 8th century. Often acting as charitable institutions, the wealthy were required by religious law to pay substantial fees so that the poor could be treated for free. Al-Razi is said to have determined the site of the new Baghdad hospital by hanging pieces of meat at several sites and observing which of them had experienced the least putrefaction. During his work at the hospital, he began to gather extensive case histories of patients' illnesses. This was an important development, as Muslim hospitals' methodical records meant that treatments could be based on these accumulated experiences, leading to better outcomes. In medicine, Al-Razi was in practice, like his contemporaries, a Galenist. His confidence in Galenic theory is exemplified in an anecdote about treating the caliph Al-Mansur, who was suffering from some debilitating condition. One day, Al-Razi asked his servant to prepare his best horse while he went to treat the caliph, who was recuperating in a hot bath. Al-Razi reportedly entered shouting and threatening the caliph with a knife, causing Al-Mansur to quickly exit the bath and chase Al-Razi, who managed to escape on his pre-prepared horse. A few days later, Al-Mansur received a letter from Al-Razi, who explained 
that he purposely provoked the caliph as a means to increase his innate heat and help relieve him. Supposedly, Al-Mansur recovered from the bout of ill health and showered Al-Razi with gifts and praise. In spite of this commitment to Galenic medicine, Al-Razi did make some new observations of diseases and made a subtle but important development in classification. In his book on smallpox and measles, Al-Razi describes two conditions which produce very similar sets of symptoms, fever, diarrhea and lesions. But Al-Razi distinguished between the two, assigning each a separate cause. This was important because in ancient medicine, diseases were often classified only in terms of their symptoms. This was arguably the first modern diagnosis then, where a distinction between diseases with similar symptoms was made. The extent to which this was recognised as a new way to classify disease, however, is debatable. It's not even clear that Al-Razi recognises this as something new, and hence it only seems to have had an incidental effect on medical theory in the succeeding centuries. The next significant Islamic physician after Al-Razi was Ibn Sina, who was born around 980 AD in the Samanid Empire. This was a sunny Persian realm that covered parts of modern Iran and Central Asia and had recently achieved independence from the Abbasid Caliphate. Ibn Sina was born into comfortable circumstances and became a physician for the Samanid rulers. His most significant and enduring contribution to the field of medicine is the Canon, a vast medical compilation that focused on the practical aspects of diagnosis and treatment. The canon was immensely successful in the Arabic world, and its influence extended to the West, where many of the translated Latin manuscripts still exist today. However, while Ibn Sina's work had a significant impact on the medical field, it lacked originality and personal experience, largely borrowing from the works of Galen and Al-Razi. Ibn Sina nevertheless became a hugely important philosopher, arguably the most important since antiquity. So we'll leave him to one side for now, as the final episode will delve deeper into his philosophy and his important debate with al-Biruni. But before we finish today, there's one more important figure we need to examine. Ibn Nafis was born in Damascus around 1210 AD, making him a much later figure than those we've previously examined. Like Galen, Ibn Nafis was a physician, but was also interested in anatomy and wrote a book on the subject. Galen was the primary source of anatomy in the Islamic world, and his authority on the subject was virtually unchallenged. This was largely because the taboo on dissection, which had existed in antiquity, persisted in the Islamic world, where there was a prohibition due to religious laws. But despite this, Ibn Nafis made a significant contribution to anatomy by challenging one of Galen's long-accepted theories. Ibn Nafis disagreed with Galen's explanation for the circulation of blood. As you may recall, Galen believed that blood was created in the liver from food and then delivered 
to the right ventricle of the heart. There, according to Galen, it passed from the right ventricle to the left ventricle through invisible pores before being distributed around the rest of the body. However, Ibn Nafis pointed out there was no evidence for these invisible pores and proposed a more straightforward explanation for the circulation of blood. Instead, he suggested that blood circulated from the right chamber to the left through the lungs. Galen had known that at least some of the blood went from the heart to the lungs and also knew there was a pulmonary vein which went from the lungs back to the left ventricle of the heart. Galen's mistake was assuming that this pulmonary vein only carried air or pneuma. Ibn Nafis instead made the correct inference that in fact it carries blood back to the heart. We don't know how Ibn Nafis came upon this revelation and the academic debate seems to be split between those that think Ibn Nafis deduced this by pure reason and those that think he may have secretly performed dissections. I personally think that he could have easily managed to deduce this without dissections as all of the necessary preparatory work was already there in Galen. It just needed someone brave enough to take the leap. The extent to which Ibn Nafis's work was known to his successors is also a point of academic debate. Compared to Ibn Sina and al-Razi, his work doesn't seem to have been widely disseminated after his death. We simply don't know whether Columbo, Vesalius and Harvey knew of his work, and if not, he unfortunately would not be the only important figure to make discoveries in this era but have little influence in posterity. So we'll leave Islamic medicine for today. Next time, we'll look at developments in Islamic optics before moving on to talk about Ibn Sina and al-Biruni in our final episode of this series. I hope you'll join me then. <laughs>